0: Ezra 3, I'm going to read the whole chapter today, okay? Ezra 3, the Word of God reads, When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheal Tiel and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the feast festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Verse 7. Then they Gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God." When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with, and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures Forever, And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the formal temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story that you give us in Ezra chapter 3. And we pray that through it, that you just share your heart with us, that you equip us with all that we need to walk faithfully and intimately with you. We thank you, God, so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, You know, when I was in high school, um, I was not the best of students. I... um, I did very poorly, if I'm very frank with you, in high school, and the reason why is because I was, um, I was like the worst procrastinator in the world, or maybe I was the best procrastinator in the world. Maybe that's the best I'd way to say it. I, I never, I rarely studied for exams. Therefore, I did poorly on my exams. And if I did feel the burden to study, I always did it the morning of or the night before. You, I know none of you guys know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I always struggled and I always did poorly and I always got in trouble from my parents. And, you know, that cycle happened over and over again in high school. And my sister would always yell at me and would be like, why can't you just start early in the week? You know, start a few days ahead. And I was like, you know, I don't know. I don't know why. I just can't do it. I just don't want to do it. And it would just happen over and over and over again. And and no matter how badly I did, I just never seemed to learn my lesson. I could never get myself to just study early. You know, I was always disappointed in myself. I went to the last, you know, you apply to uni when you graduate high school. And I applied to all these unis that I really wanted to get into but I, I, I didn't make it in because you actually had to be like, you had to, go, you had to have good marks, you know? So I went to the last resort uni that you have on your list. I don't know if you guys have that in this country, but whatever the last resort program, if I fail everything else, I guess I'll go here. That's where I went to uni, you know? And um, I was really disappointed in myself until I read the Bible, okay? Until I read my Old Testament. And um, when I read my Old Testament for the first time, it was the most encouraging thing to me because that's when I realized that the Jews also never learned their lesson. You know, they're just as bad as I am. If you read your Old Testament, now, this is what I've been sharing with you every single week. You know, they constantly sin, even though they know they're supposed to be faithful, even though they know they're supposed to be obedient, they know that they know they're supposed to follow after God. They constantly choose not to. They constantly sin and get in trouble for it. You know, they constantly fail. And even though they get punished for it and they come back, they fail again and they choose to sin again. And believe it or not, as terrible as a story as that is over the thousand years histories that we read in the Old Testament, it was so comforting to me, you know, as a fellow failure. You know, as a fellow human being who could never learn their lesson. And it's really true. If you read your Old Testament, that's exactly what the story of Israel is all about. But what's amazing about Ezra chapter 3 is that here are one of those shining bright lights that we read in the Old Testament where they finally got it right. Kind of. But they finally got it Right. And what's awesome about that is we get to see exactly how they grew and exactly, you know, what God did. And it's absolutely wonderful. Today we get a passage of the Israelites actually learning their lesson. And so because it's a positive example, there are three great faith examples or three great faith lessons that this passage teaches us today so that we can walk strongly with Jesus every single day. And the first lesson is this, when you fear in life, worship. When you fear in your life, choose to worship. When you fear, worship. You know, Ezra 3 is a story of a people beginning the rebuild of their lives. And, and what's really interesting is that, you know, we're, chapter 3 is about them laying the foundation of the temple. But before they ever choose to lay the foundation of the temple, what they actually do is they choose to lay the foundation of the altar first. What happens at an altar? Worship. Right? In the classic traditional stand, worship happens. Sacrifices happen at the altar. And they chose to rebuild the altar first, which is very interesting. And that story and the reasons why is in verses three and four. It says, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrate the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And the, and the description goes on to verse seven of how they, you know, burnt all these offerings to the Lord at that altar that they built. But here's the question. Why? Why did they choose to build the altar first before even laying the foundation of the whole temple, right? It's a really interesting question, and there's two answers to that. And the first is very obvious. It's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. They prioritized worship. They wanted their whole community to be centralized upon the worship of God. So they said, you want to know something? That's the first thing we got to build, We got to build the altar. So that's one, that's the first and main reason. But here's a second reason, which is something that you may or may not have caught when we read these two verses. The second reason why they decided to build the altar first is because they were afraid. Isn't that interesting? They were afraid. Verse three says that they were afraid of the peoples. Of the land. And that makes sense. And let me explain to you why it makes sense. Verse one says they began rebuilding the altar in the seventh month, which is five months after they returned from Babylonia. So they've been in Jerusalem and around there for five months. And what you have to realize is every Jew, it says in the previous chapters, went back to their hometown. Some of those hometowns are a few days' journey outside of Jerusalem. They didn't all live in the city of Jerusalem. Some of them actually lived a few days' journey around Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. So they've been in these hometowns for five months, and in those five months, what were they doing? They were probably rebuilding their homes. Maybe they opened up a business. Maybe they started farming. They get, you know they started creating income for themselves, and they started to build their lives back. Five months, they've been doing that. But the law says that in the seventh month, every male needs to come to Jerusalem to present offerings, okay? That's what it says. But the thing is, let's go back to the hometown thing. You've been absent. Your family has been absent from this hometown for 50 years, and all of a sudden, the people living in that hometown that hasn't seen you or they don't even know who you are, they see you start marching into your hometown, and and you walk in and say, hey, I'm an original Israelite. I just came from Babylonia. I'm going to rebuild my life. I'm a true Israelite how do you think the people of that hometown is going to treat that person? Well, the, the truth is they treated him very poorly. People who came back from Babylonia were actually hated by the people that were there. You know, a lot of them, um, they were hated. Uh, they were abused Um, It was a very difficult journey for these Israelites out of Babylonia to come back to their hometowns. They were always, they always felt, you know, oppressed in every single way. Some of them were even attacked. And so those five months that they were there rebuilding their lives, it was a very fearful existence, you know. And so all of a sudden, um, this law, the Jewish law says that in the seventh month, you have to go to Jerusalem. Every male, and a lot of times they brought their whole families have to go back to Jerusalem to make burnt offerings to the Lord. So here's the question. You just spent five months rebuilding your house, setting up a business, trying to create a life for your family and your future family here in your hometown. But now all of a sudden for a few weeks you have to go to Jerusalem. But what's going to happen to your house if everyone knows you're vacating your house for a few weeks to go make sacrifices in Jerusalem? You're probably going to get robbed You know, everything, when you come back, everything's going to be gone. Whatever business you set up is probably going to go down. That's the reality of the decision that most of these families had to make. Am I going to go to Jerusalem and make these offerings? Or should I stay here and protect this life that we just spent the past five months building? What did the men of Israel choose to do? They went to Jerusalem. They risked everything to go to Jerusalem. Why? And the two answers are the same answers. Number one, because they wanted worship to truly be the center of their community. They wanted worship to be central. They knew the mistakes they made in the past. They weren't going to make it again. And they wanted worship to truly characterize their whole life in their community. But number two, the reason why they chose to go to Jerusalem is because they were afraid. Interesting, isn't it? You know, now you, when we usually read of people being afraid in scripture, that's when they usually make the wrong choices in life. Those are the times that in life when you're really afraid, you take matters into your own hands, you start trusting in your own abilities, or maybe you start sinning in some way or another. But here in this passage, it's absolutely incredible because they were afraid, they chose to leave all they had and prioritize worship. In their lives. Isn't that interesting? It almost goes against logic. It almost goes against our hearts. But why did they do that? It's because they learned a great lesson. And that's this. The greatest weapon against fear is worship. Right? If you never ever thought about that, the greatest weapon against fear is worship. Why? Because worship makes us, forces us to look at God rather than our circumstances. And he, when we do that, he changes our hearts to trust in him and to adore the one that loves us and is in full control of our lives. And that causes hopefully, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in him. There was a time about nine years ago that I got seriously ill. I had influenza. Anyone have influenza? Like the real not the flu, word, <laughs> but like the real deal influenza. I had it, you know. And uh, being the drama queen that I am, I would tell my wife every single day, "I think I'm gonna die." And I, I, and I'll be very frank with you. There was there were a few days. It lasted about three to four weeks, but there were a few days I I seriously thought I was gonna die. I was actually afraid, you know. But anyway, um, uh, even even when I got over it, and I knew I wasn't gonna die, I still told my wife. I think I'm going to die. That way she'll still serve me and stuff. Anyway, when you get married, you'll understand. But but let me tell you about my journey. You know, I remember the first week when influenza hit, it hurts. Everything's painful. Everything is bad. And I remember I would just pray there sobbing, you know, God, please heal me. And I was asking for miracles like there was no tomorrow. And I'm begging God like 24-7 to just take the pain away, take everything away. And just please heal me. But... I didn't get healed in that first week. The second week comes along, and it's a very bizarre thing because half the time, it's like in the morning I'm praying for healing, but then I get so bitter that I'm not getting healed after like a one and a half weeks. I just start praying prayers of bitterness, you know, and it's really bad. I was saying all these bad things to God. But that's how it was, if I'm very honest with you. It was this weird, weird moment, you know. But then um, all of a sudden, when the three-week marker hit and I was still like – um Sick. And when I fully realized, fully realized that this illness is absolutely out of my control, I remember I got to this point where I was so bitter at God that I had this cho- I knew I had this choice because I was going so dark. I was I either had to do one extreme or the other, and that was I'm either gonna go full dark and just blame God for everything, or I'm gonna go full the other direction and you know hopefully trust in all my biblical teaching and just worship. And adore God, even in the midst of all the darkness. Um, And so I chose to worship. And and if I'm very frank with you, the initial reason why is because I thought, man, if I die, I don't want to go out complaining. Because if God is real, and that was the last thing I did, not good. I'd rather die, you know, choosing the worship. That way, when I get up there, I'll be like, dude, I like died worshiping you. (laughs) You know, that's much better than this testimony. Anyway, so I chose worship. And I remember I was laying down in bed and I was just singing because all you can do when you have nothing, you know, other abilities. I was like singing in my heart and in my head. And I don't know what it is. You know, I'm singing. I'm just thanking God for all the things he's done in my life, my family, Jesus, you know, in history. I started reading scripture. I'm like thanking God for all these Bible passages. And then, you know, I remember just weeping in bed because, I don't know, maybe I felt the presence of God. And it was just absolutely wonderful. And so I just kept on worshiping. I kept on worshiping. I kept on worshiping to the point where I didn't care anymore if I was going to get healed or not. Because I knew that I was the son of the Almighty God. And he was my father that cared for me, that loved me. And if this is what he wanted for my life at that moment, that's fine because I trust in him. He is all that I needed. And even though I didn't get physically healed, my heart and my head was healed. And for anyone who struggles with mental health issues like I do, sometimes that's a greater, an even greater healing, you know, than being physically healed. Um, you know, these people in the Old Testament—they made this huge decision to leave their homes, to leave their possessions, in the midst of their greatest fear. You know, when they were faced with this choice to humanly protect all that they owned or to divinely trust in God, they decided to give up everything to worship. And it made sense for them because they just experienced miracle after miracle, didn't they? I mean, they just saw God move the heart of this king, King Cyrus, To not only open up the way for them to go back home, but to fund it with millions upon millions of dollars to go back home and to rebuild their lives. You know, they knew that God was in full control, not only of their situation, but over each one of their lives. So they chose to worship in the midst of their fear. So here's the question. What do you do when you're faced with fear in your life? Right for many of us, I think our homes and our safety may not be at stake like it was for these Jews, but maybe for us, our fears revolve around our futures. You know, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. I don't know if I'll ever get a job. You know, maybe our fears revolve revolve around our social standing. You know, or maybe our fears revolve around our health or our loved ones. So, what will you choose to do when you're faced with situations? That are out of your hands. Will you trust in yourself, or will you choose to worship? I had a, I have a very close friend who we were roommates in, in uni, and when I first met him, I found out that I, I heard about I heard his life story, and this is a this is a guy going into high school who had everything going for him. You know, he was smart, absolutely smart. He was athletic. He was popular. Um, but then all of a sudden he became a Christian, <laughs> you know, and I say it that way because everything changed the moment he became a Christian, because when he met Jesus, he just became passionate about sharing the gospel to his friends in high school as a 14-year-old, as a 15-year-old, and so the, what he did was he started sharing the gospel with his friends at high school, and as a result, he got rejected, like, furiously rejected, and he started losing his friends. And so can you imagine as a 15-year-old, as a 16-year-old, you're sharing the gospel because you're so excited about Jesus, but now the friends that you grew up with, you're losing as a result of being a Christian. And so he was faced with this major decision. What am I going to do? I'm losing the friends that I grew up with that I knew for a while. They're literally rejecting me. I'm getting this reputation at school that I'm this Bible-bashing guy. But I love Jesus, but I want all, and I want all my friends to come to know Jesus. But if I continue to share the gospel... I'll lose all my friends and and my reputation will get worse. But if I don't, then what kind of a Christian will I be? What did he choose? He chose to stay faithful to Jesus. And he chose to double down. He lost his friends. He lost his social standing. He lost everything. But... What he did was he doubled down. So he started to come to school early and started to share the gospel with everyone in his class. He met random people for lunch to share the gospel. He stayed after school to share the gospel. And when he finished sharing the gospel with everyone in his year, he decided to go to the year above him. And he shared the gospel with every single student in the year above him. And when he was was done with them, he decided to share the gospel with every single student in the year below him. By the time he graduated high school, he shared the gospel with over 1,000 students and probably not many friends, right? Anyway, um, many people from his high school ended up going to the same university that we did, right? It's a huge university, right? And by God's providence, a lot of these students from his high school that he witnessed to who rejected him in high school became Christians in university, And somehow, someway, they would find themselves to come to our church. And seriously, it was like it's like a monthly thing that this would be happening. And all of a sudden, I'd meet these new people, and they're like, "Yeah, hey, uh, I'm 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 looking for this guy." My and my my friend, like, "Oh yeah, it's right there." And then it would turn out that these people would become Christians, and they would go to my friend, and they'd be like, "You know, thank you so much." And you know what they were thanking him for? Not only sharing the gospel, but they were thanking him for modeling. They were thanking him for modeling what it means to be a Christian, you know, willingness to lose everything in order to tell people about how awesome Jesus is. Right. And that's what they saw. That was their first impression of a Christian that there were, this guy's willing to lose everything so that they could share this amazing message with them. These, and we're talking like, it's not a handful of people that came to Christ at, at at the university. A lot of people that he witnessed to in high school came to Christ and By the time I graduated university, these new converts became some of the most powerful witnesses that I have ever seen in my whole life. Why? Because they saw a guy who was willing to give up everything. Who was willing to choose Christ over their fear. Over his own fear. Over his own reputation. You know? And then we see what God did. I love that. You know, we may not be faced with decisions like that to give up our homes or maybe to even give up our whole reputations or to lose all of our friends, but we are always faced with fears that tempt us to trust in ourselves, that tempt us to make protecting ourselves our greatest priority. But our passage here teaches us that if we're ever faced with that choice, we need to choose to worship first right? We need to choose the glory of God first. You know, the Bible always teaches us, doesn't it, that sometimes marching around the city, just blasting trumpets and worshiping, can actually be the most powerful weapon that gives us victory every single day. Am I right? That's what the Bible teaches us. He will always use worship for his greater glory in our lives. So when in fear, worship. When in fear, fear God more. And as you worship, your confidence will be transferred from yourself to the one who cares about you and who watches over you. Which leads us to our second point. When you worship, trust. Okay? When you fear, worship. When you worship, trust. There are two things that I want to point out in verses 1 to 11. I'm not going to read it again. But the first thing is, this, two things. The first thing is that everything that's written from verses 7 to 11 especially like The wording is really huge. Um, it just, it's describing how they're rebuilding the foundations in the temple of God. And as a matter of fact, what's amazing about this is that the wording that we find here in verses 7 to 11 is the exact same wording that we find in 1 Chronicles when the original temple was built, right? They started building the temple on the exact same day. As they built the original temple. They celebrated the festival of tabernacles and Passover on the exact same day and the exact same time the temple was started. The way they bought materials, who they bought materials from, exactly the same. Overseers, exactly the same. And after they laid the foundation, believe it or not, they sang the exact same songs. Right. They worshiped exactly the same. And all of that was very intentional for Ezra to write it like that. And the reason why is because he was saying that these people who came back from B- uh, Babylonia, they remembered that when they finished the original temple long ago, how God was so faithful to them. And so by doing that exactly the same today, what they were saying is God, we're going to trust in you that you're going to be just as faithful to us for our future through this new temple. That's what they were saying. And that's what Ezra is writing there for us today. Their worship led them to trust in God. I, wanna, I, want, you, I want you to file that point. Their worship led them to trust. I want you to follow that point for a second. Because the second thing I want to point out from this passage is a special word that Ezra uses. That word is found in verse eight, where it says that they appointed the Levites to supervise the work of the Lord, right? The word I want you to kind of, it's a big verse, but the word I want you to hone in on is, is verse 8, oh, is the word that says supervise. Believe it or not, this Hebrew word for supervisor or supervise is one letter off from the word to uh, that uh, the book of Psalms uses for the word choir director. Isn't that interesting? Supervise choir director. Okay. Uh, the choir director was understood as the person in charge of praise and worship. It makes perfect sense. But here, what we realize is that a supervisor is, and the word we see here in verse 8, is that this particular people, these people were in charge of the community. They were leaders in charge of worship for their community. So what is that? If we combine combined all these together, this is what we get. We realize that the concept of leadership to these people to the Israelites you know leadership like pastors elders Sunday school teachers CG co-leaders doesn't matter any type of leadership ministry leaders are really people in charge of leading others into worship that was their main charge if you're a leader in any single way your role was to lead other people into the worship of God. Isn't that interesting? Sunday school teachers out here, have you ever seen your role as that? Oh, Eddie, I'm, I'm just here. I'm supposed to just get the crafts ready. No, you're not. According to the Bible, your role is to lead people into worship, and that's how you need to approach it. That's how you need to see it. Isn't that interesting? That's what leadership is in the Bible. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what have we been talking about for the past few weeks? We are all called to be what? Priests. And what are, what's a priestly role? Simple. To help people worship God. That's what priests do. So it's not just the calling that we do in church, but all of us as Christians, our calling is to help other people and to lead other people into the worship of God. And so that's our role here in life, isn't it? To lead other people into worship. So through our jobs, through our studies, through our families or whatever it is, our role is to lead people and the people, the arenas that God has introduced us into, to lead them into the worship of God so that as they look at God and as we look at God and worship God, that our trust will be in him, right? And so combining those Two things together. And that's, if you've never thought about it, that's the ultimate reason why church exists, right? It's the worship of God. But the reason why we have this thing called the organization of the church is very simple. It's not only to help you look at God so that you can live a life of worship, but it's also to equip you so that in your lives, you can help others live lives of worship as well. That's what we do. That's everything that we do here at church, Right, And if it doesn't fit into that category, we don't do it. And that's why we have church. So, uh, And the reason why that's so important is to go back to the first point. Worship leads to trust. And let me explain this just for a second. You know, as a pastor, I, I love it when I hear stories like this. People come up to me all the time and they say, oh, Eddie, as a result of what we did at camp or as a result of what we did at church, as a result of this past CG, I decided that I'm no longer going to listen to secular music in the car because I want my drives and my commute to now be a worship, right? I'm just going to replace one thing. I'm going to make this one little area of my life a worship. And that's the simple thing that they decided to do. And But then all of a sudden they'll say, but oh my God, I decided to listen to Christian music in my commute. But then all of a sudden I found myself crying on the train as if the presence of God, like for some reason, hits me on the train. What's worse is sometimes I'm driving and I got to pull over because I'm getting emotional because I feel the presence of God. I just felt loved. And so I had to do something and just enjoy that moment. And that's, that's so wonderful, isn't it? That I love it when people get awakened to God on a train. Hopefully, you're not driving. But, you know, I, I love that. Another Other other people told me things like this. Eddie, I decided to start praying intentionally as a result of learning what I did in CG, as a result of learning what I did at camp or, or church or whatever it might be. I decided to start praying for people at work, my workmates. And I don't know what it was, but this morning I walked into the office, and I actually genuinely cared. Like, genuine affections were felt towards people I had gone to, to work with for the past year. I actually have compassion now, you know? And I said, okay. And then now I I asked that person to lunch. I never ask people to lunch. And all of a sudden it causes them to invest. So my question to you is, do you think those types of experiences are a fluke? When people choose one area of their life and decide to make it a worship to God instead of just humdrum saying exact, 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 And then God starts moving in in their hearts and awakening them to things. Do you think that's just a fluke? It's not, is it? Right? Because whenever we actively, conscientiously choose to worship God in our everyday lives, what happens? It awakens us. To what God is already doing in someone else's life. What is God is, What God is already doing in the people and in the environments around you. We're just blind to Him. Because we're not connecting with God during those times. And the more we do this, the more we realize that we can trust how He is already at work in others, how he is already working the environments that surround us, whether it's our work, whether it's our classrooms, whatever it might be. And you know what's going to happen when we continue to make those environments an environment of worship in our personal lives? All of a sudden, we're going to start to invest. We're going to start to invest in the eternal things that God is doing already in the environments around us. You know what that's going to do? It causes you to trust in him. It causes you to invest in him. And it causes you to be a part of his plan, which is what we were created to do. That's how important it is to make your life a worship to the Lord. And so as we worship him through the daily grind of taking care of our little children or studying or meeting those deadlines, when we create, when we dedicate those moments and we try to make those moments a worship to the Lord, those experiences that we have with God lead us to deeper faith and a deeper trust and into a deeper investment into what he's already doing. And that is what you were created for. You know, the moment the Israelites chose to worship over their fears, they were choosing to trust in God who was already at work. And as a result, they learned to trust him for their futures. Let's learn to do that as well and walk intimately with Christ. When you worship, trust. Lastly, when we trust, obey. When you trust, obey this this chapter is a very bizarre chapter everything is so awesome and then all of a sudden we get to the end of the chapter and it ends so bizarrely the the foundation of the temple gets laid and there are people that are just shouting with joy and worshiping god like there's no tomorrow it's beautiful but then there's another crowd that we read about and they're just weeping right and not weeping good weeping bad weeping sad like sad weeping uncontrollable and so you're like, well, dude, I don't understand why you're crying when they just rebuilt the altar. You know, shouldn't you be thankful? But why are they weeping? And here's the answer why they're weeping. And it gives us a little insight at the end of the passage. The reason why they're weeping is because these were people, old people, who were there when the original temple was dedicated. And when that original temple was dedicated, it was a massive, massive experience. The presence of, cloud, the presence of God was there. This cloud was. From the skies came down and filled the temple. That was huge, right? The Ark of the Covenant was there. It was absolutely amazing. There were over 600,000 Israelites worshiping. That's massive. I've never been to a concert with over 600,000 people. That was massive. But when they looked at this dedication, no cloud, no Ark of the Covenant, there weren't 600,000 people, there were only 50. Thousand people. The numbers were absolutely decimated. So the question is why are they weeping? Are they weeping because they miss what happened in the past? The answer is no. The reason why they're weeping is because the reason why it became like this was so painfully obvious to them. The reason why this new temple was nowhere near the glory of the old is because of the sinfulness of the Israelites. Right? It's very, very simple. They had sinned before God. They broke all that the Ark of the Covenant stood for. Their sins sent them into the exile. They knew that it was because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience to God and everything that He wanted for them that they were put in this, into this situation. And that's why the temple was not as glorious as the first. And it caused them to weep. And the lesson that they learned these days, that day, that old people learned that day is a lesson that I believe God really wants to share with us, and that's the dangers of sin. Sin can endanger you. Sin holds the power to ruin your life. Sin will steal your joy. And even if God restores you, like he did with the Israelites in this particular passage, you will continually feel its consequences until you go to heaven. Sin makes it so that even as you are worshiping, you might still weep, right? If you don't understand that one, live a little longer, (laughs) you will. You know, we got to hate sin. That's the bottom line, though. We got to hate sin with our lives. You know, many of us may not have experienced the devastation that these people did, being uprooted, being exiled, right? Losing family and friends because of sin. But there is something that we have that those people didn't thousands of years ago. Or better yet, there is someone that we have that those people didn't have thousands of years ago and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ experienced all the devastation of sin on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to experience that ourselves and so that we could live this life of holiness, right? Uh we may have never been uprooted but Jesus was uprooted from heaven, his home. He was uprooted so that we might have life, right? He was uprooted out of heaven for us. We may never have been exiled, but he was exiled by his own creation for us. He was abandoned by his closest friends for us. He was rejected by his own father for us. Jesus fully paid the price on our behalf so that we could now get our second chance to live the life that we were created for, a life of holiness, sinlessness, a life of obedience right? Those who trust Jesus Christ and are thankful for Jesus choose to live in obedience and sinlessness. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid the price fully for that sin on our behalf. When we trust, we obey. And as you do, that will lead you into a deeper life of worship. You know, the story of Ezra 3, it really is a reminder, and it's a great example, to truly learn the lessons of of the past, right? Um, When in fear, worship. When we worship, trust. And when we trust, obey. Lives lived like this will learn to find their deepest satisfaction in Christ alone. Let's pray. You know, maybe some of you are facing some real fears in your life right now. You know, though it may go against every cell in your body, Worship really is the answer. Why? Because it leads you to focus upon Him and not yourself or your circumstances. It leads you to trust Him that He loves you and that He cares for you, and you become convinced that He's the only one who's in full control. If you're in fear, let's turn our eyes to God and worship Him. Maybe some of you are now even experiencing the devastating effects of sin in your lives Jesus is more powerful than your sin trust in him trust in what he did on the cross for you and begin living a life of worship from this moment on let's pray We need you. God, we need you to turn our hearts, to move in our hearts so that we would stop looking at ourselves, we would stop trusting in ourselves, we would stop taking all matters into our own hands, just believing that we're in full control in any single way. God, convince us that a life lived in worship is the greatest thing that we can do. And Father, we pray, give us the courage, give us the strength to choose you and to now make decisions that make you first. Decisions that prove that we're serious about you. And God, we want you to turn our hearts that way. Especially when we're so like stubborn in the feet that we stand in right now. And God, we need you to move our hearts. We need you to move our feet. We need to move our minds, our hands, our whole bodies and our whole environments so that we could truly be your people. And so God, I pray for every every person in this room. God, that you would awaken us to the things that you're doing, but more importantly to who you are so that we might fear you and love you at the same time so that we might follow you and obey you with joy, convinced that that's the greatest thing that we could do with every day of our lives. So Lord, I pray, move in our hearts in that way. In our minds and our bodies and our lives in that way for your glory. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.